Officer Belper the T1 of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Fangraphs prospect analyst Mike Newman. And what it follows, we discuss these things, which I will present to you in bullet point, in audible bullet point format. This is what is uh, bullet point uh, number one, who the number one overall prospect will be entering the 2013 season and what significance uh, that has being a number one overall prospect, whether it's important at all. Uh, Bullet point number two concerns Seattle Mariners catching prospect Mike Zunino. Of course, he was drafted last year at the University of Florida with a recent trade uh, that saw Seattle acquire Mike Morse, uh, but trade away to Oakland catcher John Jaso. Uh, Of course, there are questions about what Mike Zunino, what his role might be in the organization, and uh, whether he might be in the majors sooner than most would have expected. Finally, bullet point number three. Uh, This is the third uh, audible bullet point that concerns Justin Upton. Uh, What teams do or, I guess, do not uh, as the case may be, have the uh, the requisite prospect packages to acquire Justin Upton. It, uh, it doesn't appear to have been Seattle, in fact. Uh, is it Atlanta? Question mark. Is it is it uh, the Texas Rangers? Question mark. Uh, it's it's probably not the New York Mets. Uh, period or uh, exclamation. If you're feeling in the mood. In any case, yes, uh, it is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature uh, prospect analyst Mike Newman, and it begins right now. talk about guys that you know he's spoken in context to and things like that yeah those are yeah i think that uh, i mean if nothing else uh, of course uh, especially uh um, fans of those specific teams who um you know they'll come they'll see the blue jays list or they'll see the mets list and they'll say oh well, i can't believe this guy is you know seventh he should be eighth or this guy is you know whatever i i think that the idea of those generally though uh, you know is to give maybe some organization um, to a, to a club's prospects, but more it's like it's a place to start a conversation, I guess, right? I mean, Mark, we know that Mark approaches it with a certain methodology. I'm sure yep. that uh, as many people as there are, that's how many disagreements there are with that me- methodology. But the idea is let's start the conversation somewhere. I think Mark is pretty good about saying these are you know these are my biases, this is how I do it, and go. Yeah, I mean, every list is gonna be. I mean, I guess partially subjective to, to some extent, and people will have different ways of uh, and abilities to, to research and find the material, but that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's a conversation starter. It's very rare that I go out to ballparks. It's not that I carry somebody's top ten or even read that many top tens, but sometimes I'll watch two guys, let's say – Danny Holtzen and Nick Franklin, and I come out of it thinking one is better than the other, and I look on the lists, and everybody had the inverse on their prospect lists. I mean, it's always going to be a conversation point, and nobody really gets it wrong or gets it right to some extent. To me, it's always, you know, the it always comes down to the quality of the information. Here's a question I have for you. Um, um, um... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you got some questions about who the number one prospect will be uh, going into 2013. And, of course, that's going to be uh, a question that people want to have answered. And if I'm not mistaken, it it seems as though a lot of the discussion centers around uh, Jerickson Profar, the shortstop prospect from Texas, uh, and uh, and Dylan Bundy, the right-handed pitching prospect from Baltimore. Is that that a fair characterization? 
Yeah, universally those are the guys considered to be number one and number two right now overall. And in some respects, it's a shame that they even have a top 100 and somebody has to be one and two this year because they are both phenomenally talented. I mean, we're talking about two of the top five guys I've ever seen in person, and the other three happen to be named Stanton, Hayward, and Harper. No, which are so, all, yeah, those are those guys are not bad. No, those guys are not bad at all. So you're looking at two elite, I mean, easily the best shortstop prospect I've ever seen, easily the best non-outfield prospect I've, never seen, I've ever seen, um, and easily the best pitching prospect I've ever seen. So it, it basically becomes a matter of taste. For me, I'm probably going to take Profar because Profar and his defense and his playing 150, 160 games a year to me is ultimately going to be more valuable and will prop up an entire pitching staff to some extent due to his defense. So he's going to make the five starters better. On the other hand, Dylan Bundy has the chance to potentially be the best starter in baseball at one point, and there are very few guys that you can say that about. Right. And yeah. in all my time scouting guys, maybe, I mean, he's the only one that I could possibly say that about. So there should be a 1A and 1B for this. However, you know, people are going to have different opinions, and, I, and you know, now, Fangraphs, readers, the whole kind of tin stap idea is pretty popular in some circles. And in that case, I'd say most people are going to take the position player because so many things, so many more things can go wrong with pitchers. Yeah, they can be uh, they can be scary. They, I mean, obviously, every team, uh, you know, is going to want to have five of them in their starting rotation, and then you're always going to have to have more, uh, you know, beyond that. So you need them. Uh, but when they're young and before they throw those, uh, I mean, in this case, Bundy has thrown some major league pitches, but uh, not yep. uh, necessarily of the greatest consequence. Um, but they want him throwing, you know, 200 innings worth of those per year. So, yes, yep. I, I imagine uh, as a uh, as a, f- a member of that front office, you think, oh, we have all, so much talent in this player. We just want to make sure it doesn't get hurt in the meantime. Yeah, and, you know, as far as pitching prospects go, I mean, and I mentioned it in the chat today, um, Bundy is about as unbreakable as a pitching prospect comes. I mean, he's already built for durability. He's got crazy good stuff. There, He, he is, uh, when I wrote about him originally, I called him a human pitching machine. I mean, he is the perfect pitching prospect. So... It's going to be very hard to damage him, much harder than a lot of other guys. Um, so, you know, to me, it's just giving him a little bit more time in the minor leagues. He didn't dominate Double A, so I'd love to see him kind of pull it together with like half a season at Double A, half a season at Triple A, and then if he does really well, then maybe in September he's up in Baltimore for good. But. You know, that's an interesting team right now in that they won so many more games than anybody expected them to do, than expected them to. Right. But in some ways, it's hurting the development of their top guys. Like, the Orioles, I'm sure, if they had their druthers, would rather develop Machado as a shortstop. But they can't, because if they do that right now, that is a worse team, and what kind of message does that give to your fan base having just made the playoffs? 
you know, regardless of what they want to do with Bundy or any of their other uh, semi-young pitchers, they're kind of forced to make some tough decisions now because they're a 90-win team instead of a 70-win team. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned they, they won more games uh, you know, I would say most, if not everyone, expected them to. They also won more games than uh, their Pythagorean, uh, Pythagorean record suggested they, they ought to have won. And, of course, we know that they had, uh, you know, at least uh, sort of in the Fangraphs era, which goes back to 2002, uh, and perhaps further back that, they had sort of a historically, uh, you, you could call it great, you could call it lucky, in any way historically productive bullpen. Uh, we know they won a lot of one-run games, they won a lot of extra inning games, Um and from what we know, those those sorts of things are hard to repeat. So this is a team that even if you took, uh, you know, precisely that same squad, if you were to play out that season, you know, a million times, you know, it's very possibly a, a 500 team uh, that, you know, that was uh, or maybe even a little less uh, that uh, did not necessarily did not result in a 500 record. Yeah, I mean, of every team in baseball, I could probably argue that they're, you know, the job of that GM was probably harder than any other because there are some really big decisions that have to be made with the future of the organization while you're kind of over a barrel because your average fan thinks you're a 91 team. It's, it's just a really tough predicament because, uh, like I said, you're kind of forced to do some things that maybe you would not do um, – you know, if you are a team that's rebuilding or, mm-hmm. you, you know, you've already had that conversation with your fan base. And, you know, the fan base of there is going to expect another 91 season, whether right. it's realistic or not, because, I mean, the average baseball fan doesn't really follow Pythagorean win-loss records. <laughs> hey, well, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I started off by asking you about uh, naming a number one prospect, right? And, and of course, lists exist. That's fine. I was. I, I think, though, that probably more realistically, um, you know, is cer- certainly uh, prospect analysts who are realistic about their strengths, but even more so about their limitations. Uh, so far as prospect analysis is concerned, probably has it uh, is is more likely to group prospects, you know, at least mentally, as so far in in tiers, say. And if we're mm-hmm. going by tiers, um, I would assume. That you know, Profar and Bundy are roughly the same tier. I would assume, and mm-hmm. I thought of this last year too. There was quite a bit of discussion of, in the various lists. Who would be first uh, between Matt Moore, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout? Uh, you know, as it turned out, none of them would have really been uh, a poor guess. And certainly, that was the case at the time. Uh, Mike Trout had a crazy season, but that's not to say that um, you know he's definitely the best player of them all going forward. Bryce yeah, Harper. I mean, historical perspective, Harper had just a crazy season at his age. Right, precisely. And, and you know, Matt Moore, he's still a left-hander who throws 95. That's not a bad thing to have on your team either. No. Um, so I think I would think that, uh, that tiering players uh, would, would be the way to do it. And I'm curious as to how you, you feel about that approach. Is that something you utilize? And, and is that something that would change? I mean, I would assume that, you know, the first tier, the second tier, the third tier, that would look different one year compared to the next, depending on the strength of the uh, the prospect crop. You know, tiering's interesting. I mean, if you looked at that first tier, you could reasonably say well, Oscar Tavares would be uh, in that group, Will Myers would be in that group, maybe Mike Zanino and Tawan Walker, and there are a handful of guys that would be in that group. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time working with hearing but it seems logical that somebody would 
pull together some lists that way. I guess that's why, you know, previous lists by baseball perspectives were done on stars or John Sickles goes on grades because on some level those things, you know, you can relate them where one through 100, I mean, it may on paper look nice, but everybody that I've talked to who actually does it thinks it's truly the worst way to rank (laughs) prospects because, you know, Really, there is absolutely no comparison between a top 10 guy and a top 40 guy. The gap in their talent is huge. So to just say, hey, so-and-so is only 22 spots below this guy, let's, let's trade two top 40 guys for their top overall guy, it totally distorts the conversation and really makes it a big mess. Yeah, and it's this is something we see too. Uh, of course, Victor Wang, or uh, perhaps it's Wong, but I'll say Victor Wang for now. Uh, did some great work. Well, this might be you like, just like saying Wang. Well, no, I I mean I do enjoy uh, saying Wang. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Well, you're you're not from the area, but uh, um, there was at one point, maybe it still exists in Boston, the, in the theater district, there was a um, a building uh, uh, known as the Wang Center. Uh, which is uh, infinitely fun to say. Um, uh, but my point is uh, Victor Wang did some great research with regard to uh, the marginal value of prospects, right, uh, yeah. based off of you know their likelihood both of getting to the majors and, and uh, doing well there. Uh, some other sort of, uh, uh, if nothing else, updates of, of his research have been done. And you do see at some level the importance of tiering there, although that's not expressly how it's regarded, but uh, you can see generally – that a that a prospect in the top ten is more likely to you know to be worth uh, uh, to have a certain you know amount of surplus value than than the guys who are eleven to twenty five or twenty six fifty. I know that uh, um, uh, Kevin I, I'm going to say his name correctly Kevin Kriag or Kriog um, from Pirates Prospect did another version of this. I, I think that maybe someone at uh, Beyond the Box Score did a revision as well. Yeah, one, I've, I've read the one at Beyond the Box Score and it was. Um, Phenomenal. Yeah, excellent. And that stuff is really that stuff is really ba- valuable when you're trying to evaluate um, the quality of a trade. And of course, um, some of that those numbers might be altered even uh, even further by the new collective bargaining agreement um, because that is going to um, change the way that uh, teams evaluate prospects and uh, you know relative to draft picks, etc. Uh, but you do see uh, you do see a distinction between those. Now, in these studies. Because I think uh, Wang looked at you know hitters one through ten, then eleven through twenty-five, twenty-six through mm-hmm. fifty, et cetera. There are naturally going to be um, you, you have to create divisions somewhere, right? And so we use uh, you know we use a base ten system. You know we cut off at fives and tens, et cetera. Now that's going to be different for prospect analysts, though, on a year-to-year basis. If we're looking uh, at a more granular level at the the actual talent of the players that exist, so I, I'm curious as to, to how you feel about that, like. Um, if if you've come across and you know in the time that you've been um, looking at prospects, there are just certain years where you say this is a very like last year. At least the the top end of it was very strong, right? I mean, yes. uh, that may not be the, you know th- this also appears to be a very strong year, like you're mentioning. But um, I'm curious as to whether you come across that years where the crop of prospects is uh, perhaps more deflated relative to other years. Absolutely, and I notice it especially in terms of bats. Um, you know, it's like I can remember the first time, I mean, the final week of the 2008 season was my first week watching prospects, and I saw Jesus Montero, 
Freddie Freeman and Jason Hayward and Austin Romine the same week. That was quite a foursome at the time. And then the following year I came out, and I don't think I saw four bats in the South Atlantic League that equaled what I saw the final week of the 2008 season. I think in terms of leagues, you wind up having very strong years and, and poor years. I mean, I think 2010, the best bat that I saw might have been Nolan Arenado, but it was like he was kind of a B plus. You know, it wasn't an A-level bat. And then come out in 2011, opening day's Harper, and it just gets more interesting from there. So I, I think there's a lot to that, um, that there are just stronger years for certain positions and, and weaker years for other ones. Like I've written that this year was the year of the shortstop for me. I saw probably a dozen shortstops that could potentially be major league average. Where in other years, I see one, maybe two an entire season that I think can even stick at the position. So positions are up and down. Uh, right now, down in the first base position. I don't think anybody can really even mention a truly legit bat-first first base prospect that's out of a ball. Um, you know, it, it, it goes in cycles. It goes in waves. One thing that I'm really interested in about, in addition to the research on prospects, is one thing that I'm seeing a lot different at the park now than I did when I started was, you know, it used to be I'd go to a park and I'd be the only guy with a video camera. Now I see a dozen people. I see scouts, especially from the Blue Jays. They have video scouts at almost every park that their only job is to run around and get video. The prevalence of video in scouting has become so huge that these organizations are now they now have video departments and scouting departments, and they are pulling together thousands and thousands of hours of prospect video to combine with what they're doing uh, or scouts are doing at the park. So that's a lot of uh, – that, that's a considerably more data, even though if it's imperfect in some ways. And I, and I wonder what the chances are of players – or teams missing on players compared to where it was when they had less information. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's maybe a more efficiency so far as that's concerned. Of course, that's that's only from the point of view of analyzing uh, like a player's you know present abilities, his overall future potential. But of course, <clears throat> that's a little bit different, right, than being able to weight all of those players' attributes and you know and being able to say that he's going to be what he's going to be worth as a major leaguer. We know what his skills are, but do but does every organization necessarily understand how those skills translates into wins? No, I think every every organization is going to translate that differently right. and have, you know, their own data people and their own scouting departments who value who have different values for things. Um, you know, you might have thirty organizations and thirty different philosophies on scouting, and sometimes even more importantly, you know, player development. Um, it's nice to be able to acquire a guy. Uh, just this past week, it's, you saw A.J. Cole, who previously went from the Nationals to the A's, get traded right back to the Nationals again. Well, he was really productive with the Nationals. He kind of fell off with the Oakland A's. 
So on some level, maybe he was just a better fit with the other organization, and they were better able to develop that talent and wanted him back. I mean, it, it all is based on, you know, philosophy um, and how to how to best get talent out of young guys. That's why you see the Mets under Omar Minaya speeding guys through the organization and rushing them uh, with reckless abandon. And then all of a sudden you get a new GM, and now I'm begging their 2011 first-round draft pick to hit full-season baseball before 2013, wondering why is it taking two years for this to happen. You know, it's those philosophies can be so much different. It's really hard to peg it down to one as right or one as wrong or even thoroughly describe one. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, listen, I want to get to a player or maybe a couple players um, about whom you're getting some questions uh, today during your chat, and, and one of those was Mike Zunino. A lot of people are uh, curious about him. Do you have a sense of why they're so curious? Yeah, I mean, they just traded their catcher. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus Montero is not a viable catcher at the big league level on a you know, 120, 130-game basis. I mean, I could see Montero, I could squint and see him as a solid enough backup. But as far as being a viable starter, it's just not there. So what does that leave them with? It leaves them with nobody a catcher. And who was their first-round pick last year? Mike Zanino. And he exploded onto the scene. So it's just simple connecting of the dots, saying, you know, there's the potential that the Mariners cleared out their catching position because they think Mike Zanino's ready. But uh, I guess the question is, uh, is he ready? You know, I mean, do you, do you regard him as someone who's likely to – uh, break camp with the team, more likely to get a midseason call-up, maybe with a view to uh, you two avoiding uh, Super 2 status or maybe more of a September situation. Yeah, it's difficult to project, and that's what makes it so interesting because in, in my belief that Montero can't catch 120 games, what veteran are you going to be able to grab out there that's going to be able to come in and catch 120 games? And be viable to some extent. I mean, they just traded for Mike Morse, who they have control over for one year. They traded for Kendry Morales. They have been they, – they tried to trade for Justin Upton and were willing to give a couple of their top prospects for that. Every indication points to them wanting to get better in 2013, no? And you look at that and you go, well – and, I, and I, I'm talking about this in a piece that I just put to, to in the queue. You know, a lot of it comes down to motivation. What organization is going to fill a hole by creating a big other hole? And the Mariners just did that to some extent. So one has to think on the surface that maybe the Mariners really do believe Zanino plus Morse will be a more valuable combination than Jasso and whatever combination of players they would throw in the outfield for Morse. Right, yeah, because, I mean, it it does have to be said, John Jaso offensively uh, has has actually been sort of, I mean, his game is obviously different, um, but he has been somewhat comparable offensively overall to Michael Morse. So, right, the idea has to be that Michael Morse can at least play a position, 
uh, remains to be seen how well. Uh, you know, I don't think the Nationals feel very comfortable with him in left field. Um, he, you know, he might occupy some first base. Of course, Kenji Morales is around, and Justin Smoke is also present. Um, and, and they also have Raul Banyas and Jason Bay. So the point is they have some uh, decrepit <laughs> older gentlemen uh, who are going to yeah. be vying for those spots anyway. Right. So the idea is that they must think that they that they have a surplus value. It's an value. outfield of Dane Perry, Carson Sestouli, and Alex Remington. Yeah, that's not uh, – I mean, that, that doesn't sound terrible. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't speak to, uh, to Perry and Remington, but I can tell you uh, I have you know, longish levers, not the longest. I mean, not uh, – you, you know, certainly but, do. Yeah, but uh, I'm not. And an you author. wear the clothes to prove it. Yes, that's right. I want to exhibit it to everyone. The uh, it's it's one of my only qualities, uh, let alone good qualities. The um, yeah, I think uh, uh right. So the, so they so they feel like they have surplus at catcher, and and um, they, they're able to and again in their mind they're able to improve in left field, uh, or first base or DH or whatever. But um. Yeah, so the question is, right, how, how do you patch that hole, though, um, in the meantime? Because, as you're noting, I mean, I, I could tell you um, I'm, I'm not uh, a qualified prospect analyst, but even uh, I know from taking a clip at one point, uh, there's a clip of one of uh, uh, Justin Vargas's best change-ups. And, of course, Justin Vargas has a pretty excellent change-up. One of his best change-ups happens also to uh, come on a pitch when uh, I think it's a hit-and-run situation and so, therefore, you also get uh, at the very tail end of a GIF, uh, you get Jesus Montero's, uh, you get a, a snapshot of his throwing mechanics. Yes. And um, even, I think, any, even a casual fan, having seen, you know, major league catchers throwing people, you know, trying to throw people out at second base, you have a sense of what that looks like. You have a sense of the sort of efficiency of motion. And that is mm-hmm. not. And that is not uh, what Jesus Montero's. I mean, he, he he slings his arm way back, so you have to assume that yeah. um, you know he's either compensating for poor arm strength or he just doesn't necessarily have the the coordination um, to take such a um, you know. And, and that does not necessarily take into account like his ability to block pitches, his ability to frame pitches, etc. Right. And, so, there, and there's something about Jesus Montero, at least for me. Like I've always been a believer in him as a hitter. And every time I see him suit up behind the plate, and if you watch this, you'll see the same thing if you watch closely. Uh, having been a college catcher and having understood the value of thumbs that are not broken, mm-hmm. um, there's a way that catchers are supposed to tuck their hands when receiving a pitch. You take your bare hand, you tuck your thumb under your fingers, you wrap your fingers and you tuck them behind your knee or you tuck them behind your foot or you just get them out of the way. And consistently, whenever I've watched Montero, whether it be as a 17-year-old or a 20-year-old with the Yankees or now, that hand, because of, like you mentioned before, maybe his lack of mobility or athleticism, that hand, he can't keep it secured. And my fear is that at one point he's going to take a foul ball off the thumb, break his thumb, his grip will never be the same, and that will be the end of what I think is going to be a very viable offensive career. And I don't understand for the life of me why a team would be willing to take that risk for a guy who has no ability to be any better than a well-below-average catcher. You don't for the life of you recognize that? Let's let's No. Um... For the whole life, 
for my whole life. That's serious. I, I won't understand. It's something I've never understood. <laughs> I've written about it at length. Every time I have a chance to talk about Montero, yeah. it's one of the first things that I have to bring up. I don't – I see him as a viable hitter. Yeah. I see him as getting much better. Yeah. And I don't understand why there would be any risk to stunt that by subjecting him to potential injury at a position I don't think he should be playing. Right. Thumbs. So you're on thumb watch, basically. Thumb watch, yes. Yeah. Perpetually yeah, on thumb watch. You can be on Baywatch. I'll be on thumb watch. Yeah. Well, I, I'll t- probably take that one. Let's talk. Uh, let's make sure that we uh, touch on this. Uh, you, you, you mentioned Justin Upton. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, that the Mariners uh, were willing to give up um, some of their prospects to acquire him. Uh, that that uh, that deal. Uh, there was some some conversations. I, I actually don't um, off the top of my head remember the principles involved, but um, it's going to require uh, some prospects uh, to get Justin Upton. I know there was uh, the, Mike Gold's name was also thrown around uh, from Texas. Uh, yep. Uh, you, you're interested in this because you're interested not only in prospects in and of themselves, but also the degree to which they can facilitate improving uh, by, by means of a trade. They can facilitate the improvement of the major league club. I mean, this is a way that teams use prospects all the time. Uh, what does it take, though, for Upton, and and what sort of uh, what what team has that sort of package? Is it is it just a couple teams? Uh, you know, could you put together a larger package with maybe some uh, uh, players with lower upside, etc. Yeah, I think there's an issue with the the uh, a number of teams because of the number of teams that don't really have a a great deal of high potential impact prospects at the upper levels. So I think that's going to immediately eliminate some teams. You don't trade, at least in my estimation, you don't trade a Justin Upton without getting back high um, high floor guys who also have quite a bit of ceiling. For example, the Mariners deal. Nick Franklin is not a perfect prospect, but I would bet on him being an above-average defensive second baseman in the mold of a Jason Kipnis offensively for a number of years. That 270, 275 guy, maybe 15, 18 home runs, really nice player to have around for a number of years, will produce, um, maybe two to three win guy, you don't mind that. Uh, Tuan Walker, he's already in double A, he's 19, he had some success last year, he's no more than a year away. There are a few better pitching prospects than Walker, so he has a pretty high floor in terms of pitching prospects. And then there are a couple of relievers that are already there were placed into that deal. And when you look at the Mariners being able to give two guys that are close, that's going to eliminate a number of teams, especially because those guys, and especially Franklin, fills a hole. Aaron Hill, he's gone after this year unless they want to extend him. And at that point, I'm, I would question the motivation of the Diamondbacks to want to make a long-term commitment to a guy like that. And if you have Franklin in the fold – you really don't have to. So there were there there was a lot of motivation to get that deal done. They they were able to fill holes in each organization. It, it made a lot of sense for both teams, and a lot of teams can't match up as well. But in I guess the last week, there's been talk about the Mets and the Braves and the Rangers are always on the periphery somewhere. 
So I pulled together, based on guys that I've seen, three potential deals that I think would work for both sides. Um, but, you know, for me, for the Braves, and, and I'm glad they're trying because they already have B.J. Upton, maybe two happy Uptons. They're both better players. And they have some prospects to spare. They have good pitching, so they can afford to trade one or two of their top guys. But in that scenario, I don't see a deal getting done without them including their shortstop Simmons. And I wonder if the Braves would be willing to go Simmons and prospects for Upton and Gregorius. So at least they bring back a good potential shortstop Mm -hmm. for the good shortstop they already had and don't create that major organizational hole like I mentioned earlier. Right, and then that would put uh, – so I, I think what their outfield now involves – does it involve Martin Prado again, or is he uh, – what do we have there? We have uh, – sorry. Well, I'll the nice thing about him is he can play third base or outfield. Right. Meaning that you can add at either position. If the Braves flipped Teron for Olt, then Prado would move to the outfield. If they added an outfielder, Prado would move to the infield. He allows them quite a bit of flexibility. Right, because as of now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Juan Francisco is projected to start uh, at, at third base, which I uh, I wholeheartedly uh, support. It's a move I support, uh, not necessarily because Juan Francisco is uh, even an average player, uh, but because I believe he's one of the most entertaining ones. He is quite entertaining. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I just don't know if it works over 600 plate appearances. It probably doesn't. No, I think just against right-handers. It looks like uh, this is all. I'm stealing this directly from MLB depth charts, but uh, it is uh, Francisco against right-handers, and then Reed Johnson uh, against lefties, with uh, Prado switching to, to third base in that instance. Which yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, they also Braves fans are also dreaming about Evan Gaddis being a legit left fielder mm-hmm. as he approaches 30 and, um, you know, the other scenarios that could play out. And they, they have Edward Salcedo, who will be in double-A this year, who has the potential for it all to click and become a really good prospect, but he's not there yet. Um, I mean, they have some internal options. None of them are particularly sexy or good. So it would make a lot of sense to try and acquire somebody else. I mean, at the end of the day... You have three teams that were mentioned in the last week. The Mets are not going to be able to find a guy like Justin Upton at this price for a number of years, and they have no impact offensive talent at the minor league level that's going to come up and hit behind, around David Wright. <laughs> they don't. Yes. They just don't have it. Right. So... If you're the Mets and you have the chance to acquire a guy like that, look, they they don't have the pieces to make a play at Stanton. Yeah. So this is the next to make best a play at oh to make a play at Stanton. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, there have been some rumors that some teams are laying in wait to see what the Stanton price tag will be. Right. And the Rangers can do that because they have the goods to get anybody they want. Right. The Mets don't. I mean, they could frame a package around Wheeler. They could include Flores, although I think he has significantly less value to other organizations than um, prospect followers think he does. Mm-hmm. Um, they could package a couple of relievers. Um, you know, there's, they have Familia. They have Henry Mejia. They have mid to upper 90s right-handed arms that they could put in. 
And uh, one guy that I really like is I like Domingo Tapia. Um, and he is a real wild card who touches 99 miles an hour that I think a lot of organizations would be quite intrigued in. But when it comes down to it, the team that still has the best shot to land Upton, if they wanted to, was the Rangers. I mean, they can put together a package of excess parts that's good enough to get Justin Upton by the time we finish this podcast. And I'm just not sure why they haven't done it yet. Well, if it's by the time I've uh, edited and posted the podcast, then that isn't saying too much because uh, the turnaround um, is not excellent. No, it's very poor, in fact. Listen, I have a question. I mentioned uh, Juan Francisco as being, uh, uh, in my opinion, one of the most entertaining ball players uh, because, honestly, um, as a disinterested party, I don't care whether the Braves win or lose. I just want to be entertained. Um, and, of course, talent is a part of that, but it's not its not um, not all of it, that equation. Can you think of any players uh, in your from your uh, from from your your scouting, your personal scouting, any players who we might be able to see at the major league level, whether it's pitchers or hitters, who would offer uh, quite a bit in the way of entertainment value, uh, if not necessarily uh, wins uh, wins oh, above replacement? Oh gosh, are we talking like this year? Or are we talking well, any uh, year? Yeah, you could the guys you've seen of late. Uh, who who okay. might surface at the major league level? Well, you know, the Cubs might wind up giving Junior Lake a chance this year. Mm-hmm. And he is a super athlete that could probably throw 96 off a pitching mound. And he's played shortstop, and he might have to play second base or third base or center field. Nobody knows where he's going to play. He's got power. He's got he, – he has tools. Um He's one of the better athletes I've seen on a baseball field, mm-hmm. but scouts uh, have nicknamed him Ricky Lake because he is such a bad baseball player. Ooh, um, oh. His entertainment value could be phenomenal, especially if you take the small sample size of his playing, I think, in the, in the uh, Futures game in Arizona mm-hmm. where he played shortstop and flubbed like six balls in the broadcast. Oh, that's not entertaining. Um, that's, that's sad. I don't want to see – I don't want anyone – to, I don't want to to feel bad for anyone, you know. I don't want. Well, I mean, he could. I mean, he's still in the major leagues, mm-hmm. making a lot more money than you or I do. So there's a limitation on how bad you need to feel. Yeah, no, but I, I, I would rather be. I would rather make the amount of money that I do and not, um, and and not have my uh, flaws, my many flaws, broadcast nationally. Yeah. Not, not that that many people are watching the futures game, so maybe it's not so bad. Well. You know, and then there's always the obvious talking about, you know, Billy Hamilton as being a very exciting guy to watch. But um, another guy that I wrote about that posted Monday mm-hmm. was Billy's Roman Quinn. Yeah. And if people want to heap praise on Billy Hamilton and talk about his elite speed, then it won't be long before people start talking about Quinn. Uh, he is... He, he may wind up being a better hitter, natural hitter, than Hamilton um, with the potential to stick at shortstop with speed uh, comparable to Hamilton. Okay, and where did, uh, you see, where did you see Quinn? I saw him in the New York Penn League over the summer. Oh, okay. He was in Auburn playing with Williamsport. Very, very exciting young player. What's um, that, uh, Auburn, New York? Yeah, Auburn, New York. Okay. So, very exciting player, 
gonna he's going to be make his full season debut in Lakewood this year, so I should have a chance to follow up. Mm-hmm. But he's a guy that could really surge. He could be the top Phillies prospect by this time next year. He could be on top 100 lists. I mean, if you look at the growth of Hamilton, this could be him again. I mean, I'm not going to say anybody ever again is going to steal 155 bags in a year. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's going to push triple digits that hasn't already done it, it's going to be uh, Quinn. Quinn. And uh, another guy I was just looking at today, you know, the White Sox had a first-round draft pick uh, 2010, I want to say, maybe 2011, uh, named Keenan Walker. And he, when I saw him, was a mess of a baseball player. But the tools and the speed, you could really see the, the potential for, for his becoming a special player if everything broke right. Mm-hmm. However, with most prospects, things barely ever do. And he's a guy who walks like crazy in high A. He has a ton of speed, stole 50-some-odd bases last year. However, he also struck out close to 30% of the time. So if you can envision him cutting down the strikeouts, getting them to a reasonable level, uh, he's probably the most exciting player in the Chicago White Sox system and worth monitoring. The uh, So I think a lot of the minor league teams now have, if not all of them, have released their schedules. Is that uh, – I assume that that's, uh, for you, an exciting time of year because you can start uh, – Looking where where you you want to be and trying to try and figure out your travel schedule for the season. Yeah, I wish I was that organized. To be honest with you, <laughs> um, you know, right now I'm looking at March in Arizona and have that Friday circled because there's a one o'clock game in Peoria with San Diego playing, and I'm dying to see San Diego because they're so prospect heavy. And then there's an evening game with. Seattle mm-hmm. against Asia for in a World Baseball Classic, I guess, warm-up. So I've already talked to Dave Lorla about it. I think we're going to get up early. We're going to hit the backfields at 8 in the morning. We'll be there for the 1 o'clock game, go grab dinner, go back for the evening game, and we plan on spending uh, 15 hours at the ballpark. My That is my one um, – I think that is uh, my one critique, uh, negative critique, criticism of uh, prospecting is uh, it forces you to get up that early because 8 a.m. is, uh, I mean, you have you know, kids. Just, yeah. yeah. I mean, people don't realize it's a long day. I mean, if I go to Chattanooga, which is about an hour and a half away, and I want to hit BP, you know, for a 7 o'clock game, BP starts at 4-ish. Mm-hmm. So I'm leaving the house at 2.30. I'm getting up there at 4, watching BP, having an an hour between then and game time where I'm taking notes and writing some things down. And then 7 o'clock is the game. That goes on till 10, 10.30. And then I hop in the car and I drive an hour and a half home and I'm back by 12. I mean, it's a day in prospecting is a fun, but it's also a 10-hour work day. Yeah. You know, on mm-hmm. top of regular life and full-time jobs and family and stuff all like that. that. So yeah, all that junk. It's quite a... I mean, it's it's. I love doing it, so it doesn't feel like a burden, but mm-hmm. it is a burden on 
my family, and they're very patient for putting up with me while I do this. Even when you're not doing it, I think. I think that just for you being around, they're pretty patient. Yes, very yeah. much. They're they're very patient. I mean, you know me pretty well. And, yeah, I can intuit you know, that. I eat with my Pain hands. Ass, and, really. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I really am. Yeah. Uh, people don't realize that, I think, on the whole. But, well, they, you know, yeah. we had this get-together with a few baseball people in Atlanta last weekend, and I think uh, a number of them got to see my true colors and know how just how right you are. Yeah, running the other way. All right, well, listen, uh, of course, I have, uh, as a VIP, I have VIP sorts of uh, things to be getting to. Uh, uh, but I will say, uh, first of all, thank you, uh, uh, Mike Newman, uh, for joining us. And, uh, well, I guess that's mostly it. Uh, thank you for joining us. That was it. That's all, all I really wanted to say. Well, thank you, Carson. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, maybe you can have me on again before two months passes. Blah. Okay. <laughs> uh, stick around for one second. Uh, that is Mike Newman of, of, of Fangraphs, uh, prospect analyst. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.